Bestbookbits.com presents Poor Charlie's Almanac, The Wit and Wisdom of Charlie T. Munger by Peter D. Kaufman. Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's longtime partner at Berkshire Hathaway. Content to be in the lesser known of the two, Munger is no less impressive. Bill Gates says that Charlie is truly the broadest thinker I have ever encountered. Of their 50-year partnership, Buffett couldn't be more grateful for their friendship and says Charlie fits the profile of the ideal partner who is both smarter and wiser. Poor Charlie's Almanac is a collection of Charlie Munger's best advice given over 30 years in the form of 11 speeches given as a commencement addresses and round table talks. In all his talks, he shows wit, rationality, and incredible clarity of thought. You'll learn why Charlie considers multidisciplinary learning vital to success, his checklist when making investments, and how to build a trillion dollar company from scratch. The written and audio summary can be found on our website, bestbookbits.com. So without further ado, I bring you the book summary of Poor Charlie's Almanac, Part 1. The key points of Poor Charlie's Almanac. Strive to be objective. Force yourself to consider arguments on the other side, and argue them better than the other side can. Learn to handle mistakes. Be okay with being wrong. Seek to destroy your favorite ideals. Invert, always invert, turn a situation around. How can you best destroy your own life right now? How can your company best fail if that were your aim? Then invert the answer to find what to do. Be interdisciplinary. Take the best ideas from the major fields. This avoids man with a hammer syndrome where you have one hammer and everything looks like a nail. Build a latticework of metal models to understand phenomenon. Metal models include psychological biases, opportunity cost, autocatalyst. Know your circle of competence. If you're outside of it, wait and learn more before acting. To succeed in investing, don't make a lot of bets. Because of parimutuel, it's hard to tell whether something is a great deal immediately. Wait to find great deals, then bet huge. Learn vicariously from other people's mistakes rather than make them yourself. Our brains are faulty. Use checklists to analyze decisions and recognize biases. Remember the exercise of how to build a trillion dollar company. Be able to explain the success of a company from first principle using major metal models, inversion, psychological biases. This will help you avoid mistakes that undo your work. On rationality and decision making. When asked to describe himself in one word, Charlie Munger chose rational. He knows he's subject to the same biases affecting all other humans, and he's trained himself to recognize when they're active and how to limit their damage. Objectivity and changing one's mind. Poor Charlie's almanac resurfaces the necessity of recognizing the truth in the world, not what you want to believe. I think that one should recognize reality even when one doesn't like it. Indeed, especially when one doesn't like it. Face with ones, the mind choose... And between proving there is no need to do so, almost everyone gets busy on the proof. Any year that you don't destroy one of your best loved ideas is probably a wasted year. It's bad to have an opinion you're proud of if you can't state the arguments for the other side better than your opponents. This is a great mental discipline. We are all learning, modifying or destroying ideas all the time. Rapid destruction of your ideas when the time is right is one of the most valuable qualities you can acquire. You must force yourself to consider arguments on the other side. Never fool yourself and remember that you are the easiest person to fool. 
applied logic to help avoid fooling yourself, Charlie will not accept anything I say just because I say it, although most of the world will. Warren Buffett. How many legs does a dog have if you call the tail a leg? Four. Calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Abraham Lincoln. Most people early achieve and later intensify a tendency to process new and disconfirming information so that any original conclusion remains intact. They become people of whom Philip Wiley observed, you couldn't squeeze a dime between what they already know and what they will never learn. Both Warren and I are very good at changing our prior conclusions. We work at developing that faculty because without it, disaster often comes. If people tell you what you really don't want to hear, that's unpleasant. There's an almost automatic reaction of antipathy. You have to train yourself out of it. It isn't for destined that you have to be this way, but you will tend to be this way if you don't think about it. CBS head Parley was a god, but he didn't like to hear what he didn't like to hear, and people soon learned that, so they told Parley what he liked to hear. Therefore, he was soon living in a little cocoon of unreality and everything else was corrupt. One trick in life is to get so you can handle mistakes. Failure to handle psychological denial is a common way for people to go broke. You've made an enormous commitment to something. You've poured effort and money in. And the more you put in, the more that the whole consistency principle makes you think. Now it has to work. If I'll put just a little more, then it will work. Deprival super reaction syndrome also comes in. You're going to lose the whole thing if you don't put a little more. People go broke that way because you can't stop, rethink and say, I can't afford to write this one off and live to fight again. I don't have to pursue this thing as an obsession in a way that will break me. A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. Max Planck. Truth is hard to assimilate in any mind when opposed by interest. Be aware of your own and others' incentive-caused bias. What a man wishes, he will believe. Avoid intense ideologies. When you announce that you're a loyal member of some cult-like group and you start shouting out the orthodox ideology, what you're doing is pounding it in, pounding it in, pounding it in. You're ruining your mind sometimes with startling speed, so you want to be very careful with intense ideology. I feel that I'm not entitled to have an opinion unless I can state the arguments against my position better than the people who are in opposition. Divergence and contrary thinking. Charlie Munger thinks social proof causes humans to think like sheep, so contrary thinking invites new ideas that are possibly more objectively correct. Here are the best quotes from poor Charlie's almanac on innovative thinking. Mimicking the herd invites regression to the mean. Given Charlie's record of success, not to mention Buffett's endorsement, why aren't his investment practices more routinely emulated by others? Perhaps the answer is that for most people, Charlie's multidisciplinary approach is simply too hard. Further, few investors share Charlie's willingness to appear foolish by not following the herd. Anyone has to be flabbergasted by Japan's re recession, which has endured for 10 years despite interest rates being below 1%. The government is playing all the monetary games, but it's not working. If you had described the situation to a Harvard economist, they would have said it's impossible. Yet at the same time, there's an asset bubble in Hong Kong.
Why? Because Japan and China are two vastly different cultures. The Chinese are gamblers. This is a classic example of why, to be a successful investor, one must draw from many disciplines. Imagine an economist standing up at a meeting of economists and giving my explanation. It wouldn't be politically correct, but the tools of economics don't explain what's going on. Crowd folly. The tendency of humans under some circumstances to resemble lemmings explains much foolish thinking of brilliant men and much foolish behavior, like investment management practices of many foundations represented here today. It is sad that today each institution investor apparently fears, most of all, that its investment practices will be different from the practices of the rest of the crowd. As one small example, Charlie brought a tennis ball practice machine and practiced volleys endlessly, much like a golf short game, which is tedious and no one really likes practicing. Mastering volleys gave him a competitive advantage. Invert always invert. Charlie mentions this tool often in Poor Charlie's Almanac, and it's an effective tool. Look at your problem from the opposite perspective, and it may reveal new insights. What's the flip side? What can go wrong that I haven't seen? Invert, always invert. Many hard problems are best solved only when they are addressed backwards. For instance, when almost everyone else was trying to revise the electromagnetic laws of Maxwell to be consistent with the motion laws of Newton, Einstein discovered special relativity as he made a 180-degree turn and revised Newton's laws to fit Maxwell's. Well, great declares in Bridge Think, how can I take the necessary winners? But they think it through backwards. Two, they also think, what could possibly go wrong that caused me to have too many losers? If you want to help India, the question you should consider asking is not, how can I help India? Instead, you should ask, how can I hurt India? You find what will do the worst damage and you then try to avoid it. Circle of competence. Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett know what they're good at and what they're bad at. He explains in Poor Charlie's Almanac why Berkshire Hathaway doesn't invest in technology companies. Don't get overconfident and subject to twaddle tendency where you think you know a lot more than you do. This can cause terrible mistakes. Knowing what you don't know is more useful than being brilliant. People are trying to be smart. All I'm trying to do is not to be idiotic, but it's harder than most people think. You have to figure out what your own aptitudes are. If you play games where other people have aptitudes and you don't, you are going to lose. We try more to profit from always remembering the obvious than from grasping the esoteric. It is remarkable how much long-term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent. We have three baskets for investing. Yes, no, and too tough to understand. To identify potential yes candidates, Charlie looks for an easy-to-understand, dominant business franchise that can sustain itself and thrive in all market environments. Understandably, few companies survive this first cut. Many investor favorites, such as pharmaceuticals and technologies, for example, go straight to the too-tough-to-understand basket. Heavily promoted deals and IPOs earn immediate no's. Those that do not survive, the first win-win, are subject to screens and filters of Charlie's mental model approach. Warren and I don't feel like we have any great advantage in the high-tech sector. In fact, we feel like we're at a big disadvantage in trying to understand the nature of technical developments in software, computer chips, or what you have.
So we tend to avoid that stuff based on our own personal inadequacies. On one occasion, the chauffeur, who by this time knew that lecture by heart, suggested that he and Plank switch places. At the conclusion of the chauffeur's flawless recitation of the lecture, a physicist stood up and posed a very difficult question. The chauffeur, ready for the situation, replied, I'm surprised that a citizen of an advanced city like Munich is asking so elementary a question, so I'm going to ask my chauffeur to respond. In the real world, it is critical to distinguish when you are Max Planck and when you are the chauffeur. If you cannot respond legitimately to the next question, you lack true mastery and are likely outside your circle of competence. One is Planck knowledge, that of the people who really know. They've paid their dues. They have the aptitude. When you've got chauffeur knowledge, you have learned to brattle the talk. They may be a big head of hair. They often have fine timber in their voices. They make a big impression. But in the end, what they've got is chauffeur knowledge masquerading as real knowledge. It's great to have a manager with a 160 IQ, unless he thinks it's 180. If you have competence, you know the edge. It wouldn't be a competence if you didn't know where its boundaries lie. Asking whether you've passed a boundary is a question that almost answers itself. Anecdote of bees. When a bee finds nectar, it comes back and does a little dance that tells the rest of the hive, as a matter of genetic programming, which direction to go and how far. So about 40 or 50 years ago, some clever scientists stuck the nectar straight up. Well, the nectar's never straight up in the ordinary life of bee. The nectar's out, so the bees find the nectar and return to the hive. But it doesn't have the genetic programming to do a dance and says straight up. So what does it do? Well, if it were like Jack Welsh, it wouldn't just sit there. But what it actually does is to dance this incoherent dance that grums things up. And a lot of people are like that bee. They tend to answer a question like that. And that is a huge mistake. Nobody expects you to know everything about everything. I try to get rid of people who always confidently answer questions about which they don't have any real knowledge. To me, they're like the bee dancing. It's incoherent dance. They're just screwing up the hive. The hedge fund known as Long-Term Capital Management recently collapsed through overconfidence in its highly leveraged methods, despite IQs of its principles that have averaged 160. Smart, hardworking people aren't exempt from professional disasters from overconfidence. Often they just go around in more difficult voyages they choose, relying on their self-appraisals that have superior talents and methods. It's impossible to begin to learn that which one thinks one already knows. Epictetus. Discipline in choosing good ideas. Perhaps the most valuable result of all education is the ability to make yourself to do the things you have to do when it ought to be done whether you like it or not. It is the first lesson that ought to be learned and however early a man's training begins, it is probably the last lesson that he learns thoroughly. Thomas Henry Huxley. Ted Williams is the only baseball player who had a .400 single season hitting record in the last seven decades. In the science of hitting, he explains his technique. He divided the strike zone into 77 cells, each representing the size of baseball. He would insist on swinging only at balls in his best cells, even at the risk of striking out, because reaching for the worst spots would seriously reduce his chances of success. As a securities investor, you can watch all sorts of business propositions in the form of security prices thrown at you all the time. For the most part, you don't have to do a thing other than be amused. 
once in a while. You will find a fat pitch that is slow, straight, and right in the middle of your sweet spot. Then you swing hard. I could improve your ultimate financial welfare by giving you a ticket with only 20 slots in it so that you had 20 punches, representing all the investments that you could make in a lifetime. And once you've punched through the card, you couldn't make any more investments at all. Under those rules, you'd really think carefully about what you did, and you'd be forced to load up on what you'd really thought about, so you'd do so much better. Warren Buffett. It's not the bad ideas that do you in, it's the good ideas, and you might say, that can't be so, that's paradoxical. What he Graham meant was that if a thing is a bad idea, it's hard to overdo. But where there is a good idea, with the core of essential and important truth, you can't ignore it, and then it's so easy to overdo it. So the good ideas are a wonderful way to suffer terribly if you overdo them. We like to make hay when the sun sets, knowing that it will surely rise again. If you're comfortably rich and someone else is getting richer faster than you, by example, investing in risky stocks, so what? Someone will always be getting richer faster than you. This is not a tragedy. Soros couldn't bear to see others make money in the technology sector without him, and he got killed. It doesn't bother us at all that others are making money in the tech sector. On Lou Simpson and the dot-com bubble, you can't believe the pressure that he was under year after year as the world seemed to be reaping enormous gains while he correctly avoided the bubble altogether, staying true to fundamentals. Lou was a wonderful example in that period, intelligent, honorable, and true to his fundamentals. Learning vicariously from others' mistakes. The more hard lessons you can learn vicariously instead of from your own terrible experiences, the better off you will be. I believe in the discipline of mastering the best that other people have ever figured out. I don't believe in just sitting down and trying to dream it all up yourself. I sought good judgment mostly by collecting instances of bad judgment, then pondering ways to avoid such outcomes. Ideological biases. Ideology skews your decision making. Your beliefs morph your view of reality and cause you to deny competing evidence, especially as humans are prone to avoiding contradicting themselves. Here's a poor Charlie's Almanac summary of quotes. Talking about Chomsky's can't admit that language is built into our genome. Pinker can't understand why Chomsky, who again is such a genius, takes the position that the jury's still out on why this ability is in the human genome. Pinker in effect says, like hell, the jury is still out. The language instinct got into humans in exactly the same way that everything else got there, through Darwinian natural selection. While the junior professor is clearly right and Chomsky's hesitation is a little daft, but if the junior professor and I are right, how has a genius like Chomsky made an obvious misjudgment? The answer is quite clear to me. Chomsky is passionately ideological. He is an extreme egalitarian leftist who happens to be a genius. And he's so smart that he realized that if he concedes this particular Darwinian point, the implications threaten his leftist ideology. So he naturally has the, his conclusion affected by his ideological bias. Ideology does some strange things and distorts cognition terribly. If you get a lot of heavy ideology young and then you start expressing it, you are really locking your brain into a very unfortunate pattern and you are going to distort your general cognition. You can have heavy ideology in favor of accuracy, 
diligence and objectivity, but a heavy ideology that makes you absolutely sure that the minimum wage should be raised or that it shouldn't, and it's kind of a holy construct where you know you're right makes you a bit nuts. Maximizing non-equality will often work wonders. John Wooden of the UCLA presented an instructive example when he was the number one basketball coach in the world. He said to the bottom five players, you don't get to play your arc practice partners. The top seven did almost all the playing. I think the game of competitive life often requires maximizing the experience of the people who have the most aptitude and the most determination as learning machines. And if you want to be the very highest reaches of human achievement, that's where you have to go. You don't want to choose a brain surgeon for your child by drawing straws to select one of 50 applicants, all of whom takes turn doing procedures. You don't want your airplanes designed in a too egalitarian fashion. You don't want your Berkshire Hathaways run that way either. You want to provide a lot of playing time for your best players. See similar ideas about avoiding moral compass in evaluating ideas from tools of titans. Being a fanatic can help you persevere through a business, but it can also blind you to bad decisions. For instance, if you strongly believe a healthcare should be free for everyone, it can collapse your company when a better decision violates that maximum. On mental models, Charlie Munger has learned a lot about the world, and he calls the main ideas from the major fields mental models. He stresses the importance of multidisciplinary learning and connecting the major ideas together in lattice work. Here's a poor Charlie almanac summary of Munger's mental models. Lattice work of mental models. You can't really know anything if you just remember isolated facts and try to bag them back. If the facts don't hang together on a lattice work of theory, you don't have them in a usable form. You've got to have models in your head. You've got to array your experience both vicariously and direct on this lattice work of models. I've long believed that a certain system which almost any intelligent person can learn works way better than the systems that most people use. What you need is a latticework of mental models in your head, and with the system, things gradually get to fit together in a way that enhances cognition. The first rule is that you've got to have multiple models, because if you just have one or two that you're using, the nature of the human psychology is such that you'll torture reality so that it fits your models, or at least you'll think it does. And the models have to come from multiple disciplines, because all the wisdom of the world is not to be found in one little academic department. That's why poetry professors, by and large, are so unwise in a worldly sense. His models supply the analytical structure that enables him to reduce the inherent chaos and confusion of a complex investment problem into a clarified set of fundamentals. Especially big forces often come out of those 100 models. When several models combine, you get a Lollapalooza effects. This is when two or three or four forces are all operating in the same direction, and frequently, you don't get simple addition. It's often like a critical mass in physics, where you get a nuclear explosion if you get to a certain point of mass, and you don't get anything much worth seeing if you don't reach the mass. Sometimes the forces just add like ordinary quantities, and sometimes they combine on a breakpoint or critical mass bias. Personally, I've gotten so that I now use a kind of two-track analysis. First, there are the factors that have really governed the interest involved, rationally considered. And second, what are the subconscious influences where the brain at a subconscious level is automatically forming conclusions in various ways, 
which by and large are useful, but which often malfunction. One approach is rationality, the way you'd work out a bridge problem by evaluating the real interest, the real probabilities, and so forth. And the other is to evaluate the psychological factors that cause subconscious conclusions, many of which are wrong. On math, people can't naturally and automatically do this. If you understand elementary psychology, the reason they can't is really quite simple. The basic neural network of the brain is that through broad genetic and cultural evolution, and it's not Fermat slash Pascal. It uses a very crude, shortcut type of approximation. So you have to learn in a very usable way this very elementary math and use it routinely in life. Just the way if you want to become a golfer, you can't use the natural swing that broad evolution gave you. You have to learn to have a certain grip and swing in a different way to realize your full potential as a golfer. Get the guts without the details. I'm not sure that I can even pronounce the Gaussian distribution, although I know what it looks like and I know that events and huge aspects of reality end up distributed that way. So I can do a rough calculation. But if you ask me to work out something involving a Gaussian distribution to 10 decimal points, I can't sit down and do the math. I'm like a poker player who's learned to play pretty well without mastering Pascal. You don't have to know it all. Just taking the best ideas from all these disciplines. Taking the best ideas from all these disciplines. Ignore jurisdictional boundaries. I urge multidisciplinary approach. That you've got to have the main models from a broad array of disciplines and you've got to use them all. I'm really asking you to ignore jurisdictional boundaries. Some of the worst dysfunctions in business come from the fact that they try to balkanize reality into little individual departments with territorial and turf protection and so forth. So if you want to be a good thinker, you must develop a mind that can jump the jurisdictional boundaries. When criticized for getting rid of calculators, well, I'm like a guy who is prospecting for gold along the banks of the Sacramento River in 1849. With a little intelligence, I can reach down and pick up big nuggets of gold, and as long as I can do that, I'm not going to let any people in my department waste scarce resources in place of mining. Thomas Hunt Morgan Charlie's point is that in economics, there is a man with a hammer syndrome, where they look only for concepts that they can neatly define in numbers. But there is much more interesting and powerful stuff when combining multiple disciplines. Mental models suggested. These are the mental models suggested directly in poor Charlie's almanac. It's not a complete set of mental models you should know, but it's a good start to build off from. General, second, third order effects. Math, numbers, quantities, basic arithmetic. Compound interest. Permutations and combinations. Accounting. Decision trees. Gaussian distribution. Psychology. Incentive caused bias. Hammer and nail bias. Appealing to person's self-interest. Consistency principle. Social proof. Sunk cost. Deprival superreaction. First conclusion bias. Crowd folly. Reciprocity. Five W's. Who, what, where, when, and why. Engineering. Backup system. Breakpoints. Margin of safety. Physics. Critical mass, autocatalyst, equilibrium. Economics, free market economy is an ecosystem where specializers can occupy a niche. Advantages of scale, disadvantages of scale. 
balances of advantages and disadvantages, wealth effect, opportunity cost, incentives, tragedy of the commons, comparative advantage in trade, specialization, markets, technology can help or kill you, competitive destruction with technology, parimutuel system, Mr. Market, a stock is a piece of business, margin of safety, cancer surgery formula, cut out everything in business that doesn't work and you're left with something that does, management, checklist, big no-brainer questions, patents and trademarks, biology, natural selection, feedback loops, statistics, philosophy, history. On pros and cons of scale, advantages, the very nature of things is that if you get a whole lot of volume through your operation, you get better at processing that volume. Effective complex processes, difficult moat, winner takes all aspects, flywheel effects of size, large newspapers get most of the circulation, which drives most of the advertising, which drives more circulation. Surmounts barriers to entry, e.g. nationwide brand advertising gives big brands a tailwind. Social proof, disadvantages of scale, inability to specialize and explore niches and be efficient at that specialization. Bureaucracy, the delivery of value is unclear, so people shuffle work from one to another. Slow to make decisions. Corruption. I won't bother you if you won't bother me. The concept of a chain store was a fascinating invention. You get this huge purchasing power, which means you have lower merchandise cost. You get a whole bunch of little laboratories out there in which you can conduct experiments and you get specialization. If one little guy is trying to buy across 27 different merchandise categories, influenced by a traveling salesman, he's going to make a lot of dumb decisions. But if your buying is done in headquarters from a huge bunch of stores, you can get very bright people that know a lot about refrigerators and so forth to do the buying. The reverse is demonstrated by the little store when one guy is doing all the buying. It's like the old story about the little store with salt all over its walls. And a stranger comes in and says to the store owner, you must sell a lot of salt. And he replies, no, I don't. But you should see the guy who sells me salt. The importance of psychology and bad decision making. The perpetual apparatus of man has shortcuts in it. The brain cannot have unlimited circuitry. So when someone who knows how to take advantage of those shortcuts and cause the brain to miscalculate in certain ways can cause you to see things that aren't there. So when circumstances combine in certain ways, or more commonly, your fellow man starts acting like the magician and manipulates you on purpose by causing you cognitive dysfunction. You're a patsy. Read more about Charlie Munger's complete set of psychological biases. Autocatalyst. Disney is an amazing example of autocatalyst. They had all those movies in the can. They owned the copyright, and just as Coke could prosper when refrigeration came, when the video cassette was invented, Disney didn't have to invent anything or do anything except take the thing out of the can and stick it on the cassette. And every parent and grandparent wanted his descendants to sit around and watch that stuff at home on video cassettes. So Disney got this enormous tailwind from life. And it was billions of dollars worth of tailwind. Obviously, that's a marvelous model if you can find it. If you don't have to invent anything, all you have to do is sit there for a while, 
while the world carries you forward. Second, third order effects, forecasting cost and ignoring incentives. Extreme economic ignorance was displayed when various experts, including PhD economists, forecast the cost of the original Medicare law. They did simple extrapolations of past cost. While the cost forecast was off by a factor of more than 1,000%, the cost they projected was less than 10% of the cost that happened. Once they put into place various new incentives, the behavior changed in response to the incentives, and the numbers became quite different from their projection, and Medicare invented new and expensive remedies, as it was sure to do. Although could a great group of experts make such a silly forecast answer, they oversimplified to get easy figures, like the rub rounding pie to 3.2. They chose not to consider effects of effects on effects, and so on. Supporting China. But suppose you've got a very talented ethnic group like the Chinese, and they're very poor and backward, and you're an advanced nation, and you create a free trade with China, and it goes on for a long time. Now let's follow second, third order consequences. You're more prosperous than you would have been if you hadn't traded with China in terms of an average well-being in the United States, right? Ricardo proved it. But which nation is going to be growing faster in economic terms? It's obviously China. They're absorbing all the modern technology of the world through this great facilitator in free trade. And like the Asian tigers had proved, they will get ahead fast. Look at Hong Kong, look at Taiwan, look at early Japan. So you start in a place where you've got a weak nation on backward peasants, a billion and a quarter of them, and in the end, they're going to be much bigger, stronger nation than you are, maybe even having more and better atomic bombs. While Ricardo did not prove that that's a wonderful outcome for the former leading nation, he didn't try to determine second order and higher order effects. If you try and talk like this, to an economics professors, and I've done this three times. They shrink in horror and offense because they don't like to, this kind of talk. It really gums up this nice discipline of theirs, which is so much simpler when you ignore second and third order consequences. The best answer I've ever got on the subject in three tries was from George Schultz. He said, Charlie, the way I figure it is if we stop trading with China, the other advanced nations will do it anyway, and we wouldn't stop the ascent of China compared to us, and would lose the Ricardo. Diagnosed advantage of trade, which is obviously correct. And I said, well, George, you've just invented a new form of tragedy of the commons. You've locked in this system, and you can't fix it. And that's a wrap on part one on Poor Charlie's Almanac. Stay tuned for part two and three. Subscribe to the channel and take a look at the hundreds of book summaries uploaded previously. To find hundreds of written summaries, check out our website, bestbookbits.com. And for hundreds of audio summaries, find us on mixcloud.com forward slash bestbookbits. If you want to help and be a contributor, get involved in the channel by reading a book, writing a summary, and emailing us at info at bestbookbits.com to have it featured. Thanks for watching and listening, and again, stay tuned for part two on Poor Charlie's Almanac. Take care. Have a good day.